everyone. Welcome back to the Art of Science and Controversy. Today, we're focusing more on the scientific side of things. So we're going to be looking at entomology and specifically how it can be used in forensics. So its application in court and to help in criminal cases. So for this topic today, I have Dr. Gail Anderson. Uh, so if you want to introduce yourself a little, Dr. Anderson, you can tell us a little bit about how you got into forensic entomology and the path you've taken. Sure. Uh, I'm Gail Anderson. I'm a professor at Simon Fraser University and the undergrad director of the uh, criminology program uh, at Simon Fraser University. I'm also the co-director of the Center for Forensic Research. And I got into forensic entomology uh, completely accidentally, uh, as many people do. Um, now, I, I guess people are a little more aware of it, so they actually focus on it and think of it as a career path, but I certainly didn't. Uh, I'm an entomologist by training, uh, going back to grade school when I had very good teachers that taught me about insects and I enjoyed that. So then I was good at it. So therefore you enjoy things that you do well in. So I had really good teachers and then through university, I had really good uh, entomology teachers. So I decided I wanted to be a medical veterinary entomologist. That is the kind of entomologist that works with insects that cause diseases. Um, so that could be um, mosquitoes, malaria, things like that. And so I did my, I came to Canada to do my graduate work, my master's and my PhD in uh, medical and veterinary entomology, specifically working with a disease in horses. But while I was doing that, um, one of my supervisors, Dr. John Borden, had been one of the kind of movers and shakers getting involved with forensic entomology, not doing it himself, but basically networking. He was very good. He still is very good at, at networking and bringing people together. Um, and he thought forensic entomology was something Simon Fraser University should offer. And so and he had actually been instrumental in getting somebody to actually take cases. That person, when I was about in my mid twenties and was just in my graduate, early graduate career, um, decided he didn't want to do it anymore. He really didn't like the contact with the police and the contact with crime scenes, and he really didn't like court. So um, he quit and John was really upset because he thought that this was a really good thing and the police were just getting used to it and thought it was useful. Uh, and so there was little me walking past his office one day. So he said, hey, Gail, how do you fancy being a forensic entomologist? I said, cool, what's that? And so um, he explained it to me. And I said, well, I don't know. I'm a really squeamish person. I don't really like that kind of stuff. I said, I tell you what, I'll give it a year and we'll see how we go from there. And that was back in 1988. Yeah, so you've been doing uh, specifically forensic entomology then for 40 years almost. Well, 35, yeah, getting up there. Very impressive. Say, since, since I was a grad student in my early early twenties, uh, and I was in those days, I was just taking the odd case just to earn a few dollars to go through grad school, really. Yeah. Um, and then it started to get bigger and bigger, and uh, the university created a position in forensic entomology, and uh, so I, I was hired as a forensic entomology professor. Very nice. And what exactly is forensic entomology? What sort of evidence would you expect to get from a crime scene and how can it be useful? Well, entomology is the study of insects. So forensic entomology is the study of the insects associated with a dead body with a view primarily to working out when that person died. And we can do many other things with insects as well as when, such as whether they've been moved or disturbed, uh, where wound sites are, if they've been poisoned. In living victims, we can look at uh, length of time of neglect and abuse in humans and in animals. And it's basically because insects will colonize a body very, very rapidly after death, usually within minutes or seconds, if the conditions are appropriate. You know, so if, assuming it's summer or spring or fall and it's during the day and the, the body's exposed, insects are gonna get there very, very quickly and they'll lay eggs. 
and those eggs will hatch into maggots and the maggots will feed on the body. And that the, the developmental stages and the age of those maggots will tell me how long the insects have been on the body. And as the body decomposes and gets um, much more towards skeletonization, you get a whole range of different species of insects that colonize the body over time. And that's a predictable sequence. So in the early days, you look at the insect development. And then once it's beyond about three or four weeks, we start looking at the sequence of insects, the different insects that colonize over time. And again, those both will give us um, a minimum time that the insects have been on the body, mm -hmm. period of insects colonizing. And from that, we can infer the time of death. So basically, I'll say, well, there's been insects on the body for seven days. So he's been dead for at least seven days. Could be more, but not less. I see. So it's not just looking at uh, a single group of insects or a single species. You need to go through an entire timeline of different uh, stages of life for different species and when each species would start to feed on that body. Exactly. And that varies with season, uh, with habitats or sun or shade or uh, buried or above ground or things like that. Uh, and it certainly varies with geography. So it's going to be very different here than it would be in Toronto or, or Johannesburg or Frankfurt. I see. And so if a body is out in the open for a very long period of time, you'd have to piece together not only the insects and the stages of insects at that season, but also the season perhaps directly before it. Exactly, depending on how long the body's been there. Wow, and is forensic entomology only useful in a situation where there's a dead body, you're at a crime scene, or can it also be used on living subjects? It's used on living subjects and forensics is actually a sort of a, a common word we use, but really it's medical legal entomology. Forensic entomology just means any relationship with insects and the law. So it can also mean if you hire a pest control person to come in and spray your house for carpenter ants and they destroy your house, that could be forensic entomology. Um, if you have moved into a lovely rural area and now you're being driven nuts by all the flies that are in the area because of all the cattle that are near, that could be forensic entomology. Uh, and so that there's anything, so if you were to sue anything involved in that, finding um, a dead insect in your cereal box, all of those issues would include forensic entomology. And that's not some, an error I'm involved in. I just do the medical legal aspects, the dead bodies. Mm -hmm. But um, many of my colleagues do. And I know in Texas, <clears throat> the issue of moving out into the countryside and then getting, well, the smell of manure but also a lot of flies, uh, a lot of other insects or pests coming into your, your house can be really big civil litigations. Uh, and that can be quite a big deal. Nice. Um, so, so it really is a, a much bigger area, but you asked about neglect and abuse and alive people. Yeah, because the blowflies that live on dead organic material don't mm -hmm. care if that dead organic material is on a live person. So if somebody has say um, an injury that hasn't been taken care of, a bed sore, um, a baby that hasn't had a diaper change in a long time, an elderly person that uh, is in hospital and are unable to look after themselves. Uh, these kind of situations can result in insects colonizing a living person, or in the case of an animal, a pet animal or a domestic animal, or even a wild animal, um, that uh, same thing will happen and the insects will colonize the living animal. And so that would give us a length of time of neglect uh, perhaps a length of time of abuse. So if um, a child has been abused and has been injured, that the insects might be used to uh, identify how long ago it was they were injured. Mm 
or how long ago it was since they had a diaper change, things like that. I see. Wow. So it is literally anything having to do with insects being used in a court case. So it doesn't need to be death. It doesn't no. even need to be um, dealing with people. It could be no, it cereal box. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So going back to the theme of uh, timelines and in court cases, how can forensic entomology, the study of insects, be used to aid in a court case and eliminate suspects? Well, basically, it gives a time since death, and that, that's all uh, mm -hmm. in most cases. I, as I say, we can do other things too, but primarily it gives a time since death. It's then up to the police investigation to relate that time since death uh, to the investigation. So mm -hmm. it might just be part of the investigation. It might help them to get an idea of who she was last seen with around about that time. Uh, maybe to release to the public. Have you seen anybody of this description who was walking down this area at, that, at this time frame? Um, but it also might be used to make or break an alibi. Mm. I see. So it's it's not a standalone thing. You use it as a rough guide for the timeline, and then you can piece that together with other things to make a more solid picture of what happened. Well, I'll give them the timeline, and then the police will work around that timeline to say, you know, <clears throat> who was there? Who was she seen with? Mm -hmm. Who was he arguing with? Um, what would they have been doing at that time? And who was there and who was not there? Who could not possibly have been there because they're fully alibied? Mm -hmm. And can it be used, as you were saying, you can use it for other things than just timeline. So would you be able to use it to determine the way that someone died or maybe on a very old body where the initial wounds would have, be, would have been by just the pattern of the insects? Good point. Yes, you can, uh, although it would really be the pathologist that actually made that call. But the entomologist could point out where wounds are likely to be found because a wound can be very fatal, but not actually hit the hard tissue. So once the body starts to decompose, it becomes very difficult to see where a wound actually might have originally been. Um, but insects will colonize, the they, they will go originally for a wound site if there's a wound, and if not for the natural orifices because the little tiny maggots that hatch out of the eggs can't break adult human dry skin. This stuff's too mm -hmm. tough for them to get at. So they need something that's gonna have liquid protein for their babies. And so the female is really good at finding a site like that. That's why she's looking for a wound where there's gonna be blood, liquid protein, mm -hmm. or if not the orifices, uh, where there's going to be mucosal layer. Mm -hmm. She's so good, she can find a venipuncture when it's no longer visible to the naked eye. Wow. Um, if you've ever seen a, a fly land on your food, Mm -hmm. She doesn't just lay eggs immediately. She walks. She walks all over it with her feet and their taste sensors are in their feet. So she's tasting it to, to test for moisture and protein levels and a whole bunch of other things to see which is the best place to lay her eggs because that's it for maternal care. Mm -hmm. Once she's laid her eggs, she's out of there. So the, the babies are on their own totally. So she, the only good thing she does to try and, and give her kids the best chance in life is by locating a really good source. I see. And then as the insects spread across the body over time, even if the body is maybe too far decomposed or disfigured to see where the initial wounds may have been, you can look at the pattern of insects and that will tell you where they might have been. Exactly, but that's only gonna work for the first little while because after a while they're gonna be just covered in, in maggots and you won't be able to see that anymore. Uh, but sometimes you can see a situation where maybe you've got an awful lot of insect colonization in an area, despite the fact that the person or the animal hasn't been dead very long. So an astute pathologist would think, well, they've only been dead for two days, but look at that major maggot colonization, which is much more likely to suggest there was trauma in that region. 
Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I would indicate, well, there's, there's, there's been some sort of a maggot activity in, say, the palm of the hand. Mm-hmm. That would be a very unusual place for insects to go because it's nasty, tough tissue. Mm-hmm. So that would strongly suggest there's a wound in that area. Mm-hmm. And so then I, you know, I'd suggest to the pathologist that's not right. And the pathologist would look much more closely at that area and would hopefully find some evidence that there was a wound there and present that in court. I see. And I, I know this, this last thing about uh, its use in, in uh, eliminating suspects, I didn't put on our preparation sheet, but you were talking earlier about how um, insects could help you with poisons. So would different poisons cause different insects to live on a body or different numbers of insects? No, it's much simpler than that. You are what you eat. And so when insects feed on a body that's been on drugs or has been poisoned, those materials end up in the insect's body. And it's a toxin to them too, in many cases. So they sequester it. They they pack it in parts of their body away from them so that it's not hurting them. Uh, And so if you analyze the maggots, you can locate what kind of a, a poison that might have been there. Often when the body is too decomposed to get a toxicological analysis done, the insects are still alive, they're fresh. So we could still get that. Uh, we could also get DNA back from them. Uh, and so, you know, say somebody murders his wife, shoves her into the basement, and then he, after a few days, he learns his best buddy is going to go to the police and tell him about his wife. And so he packs his wife up with a lot of maggots on her and dumps her somewhere and the police arrive and there's no body, but there's a lot of maggots still loose in the basement. Mm-hmm. And the police, if the police are astute enough to know about insect activity, they will say, well, those insects belong on a body. And he'll say, oh, come on, it's a basement. You find lots of insects in a basement. And the police officer will say, no, those are carrion insects. They only live on dead meat. So there has to have been a dead something down here. And the guy says, ah, oh, yeah, the cat died. It's, it's from the cat. So at that point, the police can collect all of those maggots and get the DNA out of them and prove that it's not Fluffy the cat DNA. It is, in fact, your wife, Doris. Wow, that is fascinating. I never would have imagined you could do something like that, frankly. What, because this is clearly a very involved process and you have to rely a lot on biological processes. What are some of the limits of forensic entomology? Some things that might just be subjective or that you wouldn't necessarily be able to tell? Uh, Well, there's lots of things. Uh, The main thing obviously is is season where we live. If you live in Florida or Hawaii or something, it's, it's all year round, but here we're very limited by season. So if it's now, well, now we might just start to, to see some insect activity on bodies. Uh, but if it was a couple of months ago, you, somebody can die and the body's just gonna lay out there, there's gonna be no insects colonizing. Uh, so uh, that sort of thing is a big limitation. Mm-hmm. Another limitation is, is very human in that if, if it's a, a police officer doesn't recognize the insects as evidence and they don't collect them or they don't think about it till later, that can is obviously a problem uh, if they don't collect correctly. Um, when the body, when insects are collected um, and not preserved, a certain number should be preserved always. And if that doesn't happen at the scene, then I'm going to have to take into account an awful lot of other um, things, such as the temperature of the vehicle, of police officer's car, temperature of the office, and all the different places the insects have been, which is going to be very, very difficult to bring into the equation, uh, which just adds difficulty to it all. I see. So you're not even just looking at the um, state of the impacts on the body. You're also having to look at them afterwards, after the collection process and take all of that into account. Exactly. Yes. Wow. Um, So 
you are a very recognized figure in forensic entomology. I'm curious, what was the process like to make it such a recognized um, and legitimized field? I, I think it was just doing it, you know, going out to crime scenes. I get calls from police officers saying, you know, I, I got this dead body and I got these insects and my mate tell me, tells me you could do something. And I'd say, yeah, it, it is a recognized science, honestly. Um, I mean, it's a, a science that goes back to the 10th century in China. It, it's a very old, probably one of the oldest forensic sciences around that. But most people aren't aware of it or weren't. Um, and so it was just a matter of me as a, as a kid, as a student, turning up at crime scenes whenever they called me and showing them. So every crime scene became sort of like a lecture and we go through it and I say, well, this is what this is this and this is why it's doing this. Mm -hmm. And this is why I'm collecting this one and not that one. And and just going through it like that. Uh, and so the police began to a see it and see me in action. And um, and I'm a fairly enthusiastic person. So they got kind of enthusiastic about it, too. Mm -hmm. Whereas before it was just, you know, a gross icky part of the body. And now they begin to see it as something that's actually going to be have some value to them. Mm -hmm. And then you start to take it into court and you start having court cases where the testimony can make or break the, the ending. And mm -hmm. so um, then the police and the, the lawyers start to see that and start to recognize its value. Mm -hmm. Wow. So how have you made this a more accessible field for both the law enforcement and the public? Talking. Going out, speaking to police officers. Um, I've always told police if they ask, I'll come. Uh, I'll always come out and talk to police groups. I just spoke to the SBCA a few days ago. Uh, I'll speak to conservation officers. I'm part of a, a group called Wildlife Field Forensics. We're based out of Montana. And we teach um, a one-week course. And we go all over. We, we travel, or we did before COVID. We will again, hopefully, uh, teaching conservation officers about various aspects of forensic science. And mine is one of them. And a lot of public presentations. Uh, again, I'm a member of Scientists and Innovators in the Schools. Uh, I'm on the SFU's expert directory. So if anybody wants me to come and give a talk, I, I will do so um, and just try to spread the word. Um, basically, when I'm talking to students in schools and things, I'm just trying to show that science is sexy, science is fun. We can do really cool stuff with science and that there are lots of jobs and things you never thought of doing. But I also do a lot of public talks. So um, speaking at the Burnaby Festival a lot long ago, SFU has lots of open houses. I speak at those. Um, I, I speak a, a lot to Elder College, which is um, older people who are still very interested in science and things like that, and just get the word out to the public. Mm -hmm. uh, I teach classes in this, of course, and those students in my classes take it home to their families and their significant others, et cetera, and discuss it. And it just gets the word out. Uh, my students, I have a, a large lab of students, and all of them are heavily involved in outreach, particularly with kids at various levels, like high school down to, to little kiddies, where they do um, not just forensic entomology, but, but science in general and forensic science. Uh, it's a great way to, to get kids enthused about, you know, they get them past the ooh, ick factor of an insect and think of the, oh, wow, cool factor. Because um, once you start to see something as interesting, then you start to look and notice. And that's one of the main things I teach in my, my courses is, you know, just go out and look. Well, there aren't any insects throughout that. Sure there are. Mm -hmm. Turn over a leaf, pick up a rock you're going to find insects and you start to see that what impact insects have on our lives. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, if, if humans cease to exist, insects would be fine. If insects stop to exist, we would not, we would be gone very shortly. Yeah. So um, it, it's just making a general awareness. And then of course, I hate to say it, but certain TV shows have added to that big time. Mm 
and I've done a lot of media. I speak to the media a lot. Um, and uh, so I've done a lot of TV. I've done TV shows. I've done uh, TV interviews. Um, I've done all sorts of stuff like that. And again, it just get, it just gets the message out. Yeah. So again, very much the doing part of stuff, not the dreaming. Yeah. The doing and showing and, and, and letting people have a try. Very nice. So uh, what what sorts of resources would you recommend to our audience if they want to learn more about forensic entomology or just entomology in general? Well, there's an awful lot online, uh, a lot on the web that uh, you can download and look at. There's tons of stuff. I had obviously had to teach my classes over the last two years uh, remotely, which meant me digging through so much YouTubes and things like that to give them interesting images and videos uh, and cases uh, that they could substitute for the lab that we would normally have, you know. Uh, and so there's a ton of stuff out there. Uh, contact entomologists, contact forensic entomologists. Uh, you know, most people are willing to talk about their subject. Mm -hmm. So most people are willing to chat about what they do and how you get into it and what the job really entails. If people are particularly interested in forensic science in general, if you go to the website for the Canadian Society of Forensic Sciences, Canadian Society of Forensic Sciences, you'll see a lot of stuff about forensic stuff, but there's also somewhere in there under resources or something, a PDF that I edited about careers in forensic science. And each career was written by somebody in that field. Mm. So if it was an ident officer, I had ident officers write that bit. If it was a coroner, I had coroners write that bit entomology bit I wrote, but forensic chemistry was written by a chemist and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. And it's got lots of websites and things like that uh, to, to lead people, especially students, but anybody who's interested. Mm -hmm. You know, if you're watching a TV show and you think, hang on, that can't be right. Well, Google it and see. Um, there's a lot of information about forensic science that, that will tell you what is the real, the real mm -hmm. way it's done. And you're talking about just reaching out and talking to entomologists. Can you just uh, like go to a university's website and find contact information? You certainly can, yes, but we also have the Entomological Society of British Columbia. We also have the Entomolo Entomological Society of Canada, and those all have websites with, ton with members on them and, and areas and, and information. Uh, the Entomological mm -hmm. Society of Canada now has an entomology enthusiast category where you can join usually as, as a student, uh, as a kid. I mean, I don't mean a university student, but as, as a school um, student and get access to everything and speak to anybody you like and go to the meetings and everything you, you can do most of what a full member would do mm -hmm. so okay. if you're interested in etymology that's a great way to start yeah that's really cool uh is there any final note you want to leave the audience with um well i think when we're talking career-wise is to to never let anybody tell you you can't do something mm. I was told I'd never be able to do this. At least if I did it, I'd never make a career of it. Um, and uh, you just got to ignore that and go with what you want. You got to try for it and go for it because if you don't try, you, know, you don't have a chance. But I mean, there was a lot of times I was told by teachers when I was a kid that you won't be able to do that. You can't do that. You can't do it because you're a girl. You can't do it for whatever reason. Um, and that's wrong. Um, one of my very best teachers in, in school told me I could never be a geologist. And I rather fancy being a geologist at the time because you couldn't be a, a girl in geology. And I said, well, hang on, that's not right. That there's laws against that. You can't, you can't discriminate like that. And he said, well, it's a simple thing. I mean, you, most of the jobs are in gold or in, in oil, and they're not going to have a single woman on an oil rig or in a gold mine. Um, 
And I mean, he was telling me this in the best of intentions. He was trying to help me. And he was 100% wrong. Um, I have two friends that are geologists, and one of them is in gold and one of them is in oil, and they're both women. Um, he, he was totally wrong. But I mean, this, when I grew up, obviously, there was no internet. So in order to, what I should have done is, is gone and found out some geologists and said, excuse me, but you're a geologist and you're a woman. How come? I was told I couldn't. Um, but it was harder back then. I was only 15 and, and you know, it was harder to, to find things out about stuff like that. But now it's dead easy. Somebody tells you, you can't do something. You go do a quick Google and find somebody who's doing it and say, well, is it true? Can I not do this because of whatever? Um, and talk to somebody who's actually doing it. And as I say, most people are really willing to talk to you. And if they're not, try somebody else. There's lots of them out there. Um, and find out what is the reality of it. Like, say, I really hate chemistry. Can I still do so-and-so? Go and talk to some people doing it and say, is chemistry really required? And if it is, let's find a way that you can figure it out, that you can do it. Yeah, that's, that's really good advice, actually. Just find Reach people out. who are doing it and talk. Reach out. Yeah, well, it, it's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you, Dr. Anderson. So thank you so much for coming on the show today. Um, that's been the Art of Science and Controversy, everyone. You can follow us if you want more clip-based segments, minute, minute and a half long, on Instagram at tasac.podcast. That's T-A-S-A-C dot podcast. We're also on YouTube at the Art of Science and Controversy. It's been a pleasure to talk with you, everyone, today. So we'll see you next time. <laughs> <laughs>